I'm Sterling Fox, uh, joined on the line from somewhere in the outback in eastern Ontario, where he's desperately trying to enjoy some time off on Labor Day weekend, uh, with no thanks to us for interrupting him, is our guest David Masson. Mr. Masson is Director of Enterprise Security with Darktrace PLC, a global cyber security firm. David Masson, good morning, and thank you for joining us, sir. Hey, good morning, Sterling. Uh, glad to be here. Well, it's good to have you with us. We saw an article in uh, the Victoria Times columnist that quoting you, uh, and this was talking about, of course, vaccine passports. Uh, we've just seen Quebec adopt the uh, the notion. British Columbia yeah. second uh, in Ontario now. Premier Ford has said we're going to go forward with it. Uh, you were looking at the Quebec model, David, and you said, and I'm quoting now, the B.C. government needs to be on standby to get hacked. It's probably going to happen why would why would you say something like that David with such confidence uh, because that's exactly what happened to the Quebec system and I think they announced it not last week the week before on the Tuesday um, by the way vaccine passports great things mm-hmm. they announced it on the Tuesday and within 24 hours a load of the QR codes have been hacked and somebody managed to get either get into the database or counterfeit the codes of various uh, well-known personalities in uh, Quebec um, a very, very unfortunate that it happened, um, particularly because we're all hoping to get uh, move on from this pandemic, and the whole idea of vaccine passports is to support that. Sure. And they got hacked within 24 hours. So it was a case of um, just reminding the BC government, you know, don't think it's going to be okay. You've got to be on standby, get ready. It's inevitable that mm-hmm. big organizations will get attacked. What isn't inevitable, that damage will then be done if you're on your guard and you're ready. Yeah, well, let's, uh, let's just unpack some of that. That's a, a loaded uh, comment, and, and I think f- full of information that needs to be dissected a little bit. For example, take me back here and hold my hand, if you will, for a moment, David. Yep. Uh, on this Quebec uh, vaccine passport campaign, uh, the uh, according to the paper here, uh, QR codes, including the code belonging to the premier of the province and its health yep. minister, were hacked. Yep. How does someone, I don't understand how this works, how does someone take take a QR code, perhaps a picture of it on a TV newscast, and hack into it? Um, The actual details of what they've actually done still aren't out in the public. Um, That's probably for good reason, because perhaps maybe Quebec's still trying to work on make make sure it doesn't happen again. Sure. There's two things probably that happened. Either the hackers were able to take um, widely known information about these individuals, because they're politicians, so they're very open about them. Sure, of course. You can learn about them and use them to access the database that holds uh, the COVID um, uh, passport information mm-hmm. and to then obtain their QR codes, or they worked out a way of actually counterfeiting the QR codes. Now, by counterfeiting, I mean they were able to make their own QR codes and then say that they were the Premier of Quebec or the head of the NDP in, in, mm-hmm. uh, in Quebec, including the dates of birth, because you know these politicians are quite open about when they're born and then use those to construct um, Quebec um, Office of Health QR codes themselves. We're not entirely sure which, which of those two options are, if there was a third option that actually happened. And, of course, that is an issue, because if the public doesn't know, well, how, how did this happen? Mm-hmm. Nobody's saying then people start having some doubt about the whole process, which is unfortunate. So no, let's let's also take a look at who might be behind this. We know, for example, and I mean, I'm thinking of that '90s movie War Games, for example, what a bunch of kids hacked into yeah. the Pentagon strictly because it was something they thought they, they it was for sport 
for crying out loud. We know that that there are those who also conduct cybersecurity uh, ransomware attacks, and that's malicious and deliberate. Uh, what type of hacker do you think was going after the Quebec uh, vaccine passport? Would this be vexatious? Would this be sport? Or would there be more malice behind it, do you think? Uh, on this occasion, based on the little that we know, it looks more like sport, but we don't really know. Um, it's for all those reasons, to be honest with you, Sterling. Uh, it could be nation states who um, have a, a big thirst for grabbing hold of huge databases about foreign populations. True. I don't know why. It could be criminal gangs. Now, people should remember, your personal information in the cyber criminal world is a currency. It's bought and sold. It's, it's a currency. So it could be criminal gangs that were after this. It could be those who have just proven that, hey, you know, look how clever I am. They do it for thrills and, and proven that they can uh, get into places. And it could also be for various, it could be political groups. Sure. Um, as, as we all know, um, whether we like it or not, the whole uh, pandemic's been politicized. And it could be people trying to prove a point mm-hmm. uh, on either side of that pandemic debate. Uh, Here in B.C., the premier has said the government is working with the privacy commissioner, the Ministry of Health, the Office of the Provincial Health Officer. And the quote from John Horgan is, uh, we're confident that every tool we can use to protect this information and to make sure it can't be duplicated or forged will be put in place. And we'll see how we unroll it on the 13th of September and can be judged at that time. So we're about a week away from the big rollout here in B.C. Uh, The premier saying that they're pretty confident confident. Uh, And then I'm going back to a quote from you in the same story, David, quote, Quebec figured they covered all the angles. But guess what? They hadn't. There are always clever people out there who will find a way to get around things. And the B.C. government should be considering that. Clearly, David, the B.C. government is considering that. How thorough do you think their preparation is relative to what the hackers are expecting? Uh, the honest answer to you is I don't know, but I'm pretty confident they'll be doing exactly as they've said, as much as they can. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, this Quebec thought they'd uh, got it all covered, and lo and behold, in 24 hours, somebody found found a flaw in the system. Sure. And this is often this is often the case with um, IT programs. Anyway, I'm sure everybody's listening will be well uh, used to receiving messages on the computer asking them to update this, mm-hmm. update that, yep. download this patch, download that patch, and that's an example of. Because organizations who could give you this software keep discovering flaws in it. Mm-hmm. They've never, you know, it's very rare to bring out an IT, a piece of IT that's absolutely perfect first time around. Even the companies themselves are forever finding vulnerabilities and flaws in it. And that's why you see this constant patching. So if you're aware of how often you have to update things, that's an awareness to people to realize how vulnerable these systems can be. There's always ways into them. The BC government will know that. will be trying the absolute hardest to make sure they're ready, to make sure they have covered all the angles. But as I said, it's inevitable you will get hacked and attacked. What's not inevitable is that danger will then occur. Because if you're on your ball, you're ready, you get your training, you've got good technology, they might get in, but you'll be able to stop them very, very quickly and make sure they don't cause damage. Exactly. And that part, that would be, I suppose, in part of the rollout of any uh, uh, program this size so quickly, David, you're going to have to expect a few speed bumps. So yep. the fact that Quebec, for example, was hacked within its first 24 hours of its vaccine passport rollout was probably something, uh, despite the fact that they said they had covered all the angles, they didn't. But so they would be expecting that and to a certain extent the very very beginning of something like this as you've already mentioned uh, these programs do have flaws so the best time to find out where the flaws are is right literally on opening day isn't it 
Yeah, but hopefully you don't have too many flaws um, too often, too quickly on opening day, because the big issue behind this is maintaining people's confidence in the system. That's right. Let's be honest. Let's be honest about it. After a year and a half of this pandemic, we're all probably a bit fragile about just about everything. Oh yeah. And we've all been we've all been forced online. We're all living our lives online now. So you know you want to make sure that if there are flaws on opening day, you get them fixed really, really quickly. You're transparent about the fact that there's been flaws. You don't get cagey and, and secretive about it. Right. And you're on the ball and you get them fixed really, really quickly in order to maintain confidence. The big mistake uh, that any government, Quebec or BC or Ontario in its time, will, would be to, to try and cover something up and uh, pretend it didn't happen. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't imagine they try and actually cover up, but they might be a bit late while they're trying to work out what they're going to say. Um, most uh, organizations have what's known as a response plan. To mm-hmm, sure. Sure. And, with, and within all the technological parts of that response plan, there should always be a part of the plan which is about talking about it and telling people about it. And it's always good to disclose as early as possible, because if you don't, you'll discover that others will be doing this disclosure for you, and it won't be on your terms. Take a moment and talk to us a, a little bit about your company. Uh, doing a little homework for this appearance, uh, I noticed Darktrace is global. You're a cybersecurity company with offices literally in every corner of the planet. Tell us more about Darktrace. Uh, yeah, we were founded in 2013 back in the United Kingdom uh, when we had the idea of using artificial intelligence to actually protect computer networks uh, from cyber threat. Um, and since then, we've had a, a massive uh, growth all around the world. We opened up here in Canada in 2016. I was the guy who uh, set the company up uh, here in Canada. Um, two months ago, we became a publicly limited company. And uh, we also announced a, a big partnership with Microsoft just a, a few weeks ago. So uh, we've had amazing growth, and that's almost entirely based on the fact that we use artificial intelligence to deal with the uh, quantity, the complexity, and, and the speed of those cyber attacks that we now face. Indeed, and of course, there's nothing but an escalating volume of cyber attacks going yep. forward. And as you talked about, some of these are, are, are amateurs who do it for the sheer joy, or if you will, of, of breaking into things because they're clever enough to do so. Uh, then there are the malicious uh, hackers who are in the business, gangsters, essentially in it for money. And then there are state actors who have a whole other agenda going on. And in the middle of all of these attempts to penetrate our security systems, governments like British Columbia, Quebec and Ontario and others are trying to get on with life and in this case provide its citizens with some kind of access point to get on with their lives. Typically the vaccine passport is what we're talking about. What's it going to look like in BC? And and I notice that you also gave uh, props to the BC government for deciding to not go exclusively in one domain, but to have a, 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 a digital version of the passport and a hard copy available as well. So let's talk about a couple of things there. Mostly, what's it going to look like, do you think, David? Uh, well, BC uh, government's been a bit um, um, coy on what it's actually going to look like. Um, if it's on your mobile phone, I'm going to presume it's going to be a QR code okay. information that says that says, hey, it's Dave Masson and I've been double vaccinated or single vaccinated uh, against COVID-19. And it will maybe have something else that allows you to produce another form of ID, maybe your driving license, so they can see your photograph and, and realize that you are the person in that photograph and the license mm-hmm. holding the mobile phone with the QR code that says you've been vaccinated. That's what the Quebec one certainly looks like. Or alternatively, you're going to turn up and you print it off or somebody's printed off for you um, a, a little certificate sure. rather than a passport 
that actually says, hey, I've been double-vaxxed. And that's why I was given the kudos to the BC government for making sure that's possible, because not everybody has an expensive smartphone. Not True. everybody can afford the, the plans and all the rest of it. And you really do not want, in times of pandemic, excluding sections of the population from that support. So well, well done, the BC government. Well, indeed. And already here in BC, David, we're hearing that uh, there are groups who are displeased with this because they say that it will, it will end up isolating various groups, people with disabilities, uh, people with legitimate medical exemptions and so on. And they did include people who don't have digital devices, as in phones, to pack around with them everywhere they go. So that uh, does at least take care of including Including more people. Uh, the the uh, notion, though, and this is where it becomes a bit cumbersome, David. I had a great conversation yesterday with a chap who owns a, 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 a chain of fish and chips restaurants across the province called Sea Lovers. And his he's got he's understaffed to begin with because they can't staff any of their properties up. There just aren't people available. And he says, now I've got some minimum wage young person who's going to be tasked with set, standing at the front door uh, with some kind of scanning device in order to read the QR code on the phone and then double validating the fact that there's a driver's license to be included. It's awkward and it's cumbersome and it's uh, it's also, it could be a pretty awkward challenge for a young person, uh, particularly when confronted by someone who doesn't want to cooperate. Uh, yeah, um, and we've seen lots of issues with um, people trying to enforce mask wearing inside shops. Yeah, actually, we've all we've all seen clips of uh, angry, usually men, actually angry men, complaining about the fact they don't want to wear the mask. Mm. And now it's a case of uh, I need to see your QR code, please. And uh, you know, so he says, "What QR code?" Because they haven't been paying attention to what's going on. Sure. Yes, there's always going to be there's a process with this, and um, the Quebec government itself said they were trying to make this as simple as possible for those very reasons, but there is an element of you've got to have something, you've got to produce something, someone's got to check something. Mm-hmm. Uh, the checking part might be uh, some of the issues, whether you just, I mean, if you turn up and you've got a QR code from the BC um, Health Ministry, do you, need to, do you need to then scan it to check to make sure it's, uh, it's correct or are you going to take it at face value? Sure. Um, that, or is your scanner got to then take that information and with your scanner, it goes back to the database, which is a bit dangerous because mm-hmm. that's something now access in the database to then check to make sure, yep, it's true, you really have been vaccinated, rather than taking the proof of vaccination at face value. So there are issues here, and um, yeah, you're right. Um, there's probably going to be friction. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, there's probably going to be friction. One of the things that the government is charged with, Dave, is, is as you've mentioned a couple of times, producing programs and systems that inspire confidence. The Canadian border is open to international travelers effective Tuesday, September 7th. All those people now coming into our country from all around the world will be required to have their uh, shots and they'll be required to take a test uh, for yep. 72 hours prior to arrival, etc., etc., And they're also going to be required to register with something called the Arrive Can app. This is the federal right. government's program for tracking and tracing people coming into the country. Uh, um, most Canadians, when we go to travel, will also have to use the Arrive Can app both out of the country and coming back home. I'm one of those Canadians, Dave, that's just dying to get on a plane and buzz off to just about anywhere. And I have not yet registered with the ArriveCan app, and I'll tell you why. I don't trust it. 
I'm not convinced that it's secure enough that I can relax, file my data, and move on with life. How, how um, retrograde am I being or how paranoid am I being about something that's supposed to be federally secure? Um, do you know what? I used to work for the federal government, so I tend to trust them because I've been there and I've, I've been one of those people busting your buns to make sure you get it absolutely correct. So I'm sure they're doing the best. But I can understand your hesitancy. I can understand the hesitancy of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who, who are thinking about this. Because here's another database that's being built. It's going to be huge because it's going to have all the Canadians who travel. It's going to have everybody who travels into Canada. Yep. And I, pre-pandemic, I can't remember what the statistics are, but we have millions and millions of people come to Canada every year. We have a massive immigration program. We're a great place to visit. By the way, I'm an immigrant, so there you go. I loved it. I came here and I stayed here. And that's going to be a huge database with lots of information about you. What's going to, I, I don't actually know what you need to give in the um, Arrive Can um, application, but I imagine it's probably everything that's on your passport. So there's a whole pile of information sitting under the database, and you'll have to make sure you protect that. You'll have to make sure you protect access to it from those who are supplying the information, those who access it. And, of course, the bad guys know this because they read all the same uh, bulletins as everybody else. And some of them will be thinking, well, I wonder how we can have a go at this. Final question to you, Mr. Masson, and we are grateful for your time this weekend. For those who are saying, and speaking of paranoia on a personal level, as I just was, there are other people who say, no, I'm not particularly interested in this because this now represents a new layer of surveillance that the governor, uh, the government rather, has on me. And uh, frankly, I don't, as you've already pointed out in our conversation a couple of times, I don't think this new level of surveillance really represents much. They've already if they want to find you they can find you in a big hurry too can't they uh <laughs> yes and unfortunately a lot of big uh, uh nation states outside canada can do exactly the same thing mm-hmm. so uh in terms of being concerned about that as an intrusion into your personal privacy the government already has that information don't they um, well, uh, your health ministry has already got, guess what, your health information, because that's what they're offering back to you, so you can then prove to people that you've been uh, vaccinated. It's a bit of a quid pro quo, um, but I'd remind everybody what this is all designed to do is try and get some normalcy back into life, try and get us ahead of the game in this pandemic, and get us back to um, living lives normally the way we used to. All right, and, and, and getting back to normal involves using or adapting some interesting new, somewhat uh, abnormal-seeming procedures and processes. But as you point out, if that gets us there, away we go. Dave Masson, thanks very much for joining us this weekend. We do appreciate your uh, giving up a little bit of time on Labor Day weekend off. We're grateful for that. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Rising food prices. It's difficult to be anywhere in Canada and not recognize the fact that groceries cost more and Canadians can expect even higher grocery prices this fall as the cost of some item continues to climb. They've been on a steady rise, grocery prices, since the beginning of the pandemic and both COVID-19 and climate change are the drivers behind some of these price increases. According to our next guest, it is always a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the food professor, to CKNW Weekend Mornings to talk grocery prices this time around. Sylvain, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. 
it's good to have you with us. Now, British Columbia, uh, we're talking specifically about this market for the first couple of minutes, Sylvain, because our food prices are rising, of course, in uh, in the same at the same level as they are across Canada for many commodities and many uh, categories of food. But here in British Columbia, we count on local production for a lot, and this summer has not been a very good production summer for a lot of crops, and that's going to cost more in the fall too, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Of course, uh, the weather uh, in uh, in your area was absolutely dreadful this summer. Uh, even down south in California, it's, it hasn't been uh, hasn't been easy either. Uh, but to be honest, uh, this is this is a global phenomenon. Sure. Uh, we've seen reports of droughts in Canada, uh, the U.S., Russia, uh, even on the other side uh, of. Of the of the weather spectrum flooding, uh, there's been some floods in Europe mm-hmm. affecting harvest. So that's why the cost of of many commodities are are way up. Uh, canola, barley, um, all most grains are are way up. And of course, uh, with fruits and vegetables, with produce, of course, you guys do a great job producing great high quality produce, but. Uh, because of the heat waves that we've seen, extreme heat waves that yeah. we've seen uh, over the summer, uh, unfortunately, the quality of many products uh, have been compromised. So let's. Uh, I, should, I should also mention to our listeners here in Vancouver, Sylvain, that you are joining us from Dalhousie University in Halifax on the other side of the country on this Labor Day weekend, just for a geographical pinpoint as to where to find you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about. <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the supply chain. I mean, obviously, we've had limited production available because of the crummy weather this summer here in BC, and ours is not the only region in the country to have experienced such. But a lot of our food doesn't. Come Come from domestic sources. It comes from elsewhere on the planet, and we have. In, I mean, we've seen general. We're seeing Sylvain. General Motors is closing down production lines of cars because they can't get enough chips. That's part of the global supply chain. So, how is that affecting Canadian food prices? That, that's right. I mean, the, the the factor the the climate factor is certainly one impacting food prices, but the other one are logistics. And we're seeing it, um, global logistics are impacting um, many, many economic sectors, uh, including food. Now, we're hearing stories with uh, with cars, uh, with microchips, but in food, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm, yeah. uh, if, you talk to, if you talk to any importers, uh, anyone at the port of Vancouver, uh, they will tell you that right now to get any, any food products into Canada is three, three to four times more expensive last year, just because uh, of, of COVID protocols, it's costing more to get some space. Because uh, right now, the global economy is not in balance. Asia is burning, really. I mean, it's going very well. North America is recovering. Mm-hmm. So the, lots of empty containers actually being, uh, that, that's floating really on, on uh, world oceans right now. And that's costing way more. So that's why... Generally speaking, supply chains are much less efficient than 12 to 18 months ago, and that's 
coming at a cost, and, and that's catching up to us as consumers. Indeed. Now, you talked a little bit about grains. We'll talk about beef and pork and stuff in a bit, but specifically zooming in on brain, uh, grains, rather. and here is a country now that we do produce a lot of our own grain products. Are, uh, are the grain prices, and you've talked about some pretty, pretty spectacular increases in some categories of grains, oats, for example, uh, is this... Uh, are these increases in prices in Canada from Canadian produced products, or is it part of a world price? Yeah, these commodities are negotiated uh, on a world market, really. So uh, prices are being negotiated right now, but we are expecting lower uh, than expected inventories for many grains. And that's why futures are way up right now for anyone, really, around the world. So the Northern Atmosphere has been challenged by uh, by uh, really uh, 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 weather weather patterns that haven't helped uh, production at all, and so we're hoping that the southern hemisphere will do better with Australia, Brazil, and other ma- major uh, production countries uh, in agriculture. But right now, uh, we are expecting processors to pay more for their inputs, and, and again. Uh, we are expecting prices to be adjusted uh, both in retail and service. I'm sure that a lot of people have noticed when going to the restaurant this summer that prices are much higher than yep. they used to, uh, and they're they're affected the same way as retailers. So uh, can I talk just very quickly here about Brazil? As almost an anecdotal aside, specifically Brazil is the source of a great deal of the world's coffee, Sylvain. And we're hearing now now that they've had a really crappy season down there in terms of coffee production. So volumes are down, which means ultimately prices will go up. And coffee is something, it's only 7.12 here in Vancouver. Coffee matters a lot at this time of day to a lot of people. Uh, should we expect uh, much of a bump up in coffee prices over the winter ahead? Well, I mean, I've been to Vancouver many times. Uh, coffee uh, doesn't just matter in the morning. It matters, like, <laughs> <laughs> all day long. That's right. You guys love coffee. Yeah, you're, you're – yeah. I mean, Canada is actually – uh, the fifth uh, highest consumer of coffee in the world per capita. And I haven't looked at uh, provincial data, but I suspect that BC is way up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. Now, uh, if you've been to your favorite coffee shop uh, in Vancouver, I suspect that you've already seen your uh, your average cup of coffee going up in price mm-hmm. already. If it hasn't happened, it's coming. Uh, coffee futures are way up. You see, back in July... On July 29th, to be precise, uh, Brazil was reporting early frost in some areas. Exactly. Affecting Arabica beans. And Arabica beans uh, grow uh, on side of mountains, and they need really uh, constant weather. Uh, if you come in with uh, an early frost, it destroys, uh, it destroys crops yes. or the quality of beans. And, so the, and, it, and the Arabica bean offers us that, that really uh, great dark roast coffee more and more people actually enjoy in Asia and, of course, here in Canada. And so right now, I looked at uh, coffee futures this morning. They're at, they're at $1.94 U.S. per pound, which is one of the highest levels in, in almost a decade. Oh, my. So, that, again, when that happens, typically prices are adjusted at retail. 
Okay, well, I'm glad I asked you about it. Being prepared for a price hike is is a big part of managing it successfully. I'm very fortunate to be joined from Halifax by Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Canada's food professor from Dalhousie University. And Sylvain, before the break, we were talking about grains, and there's a quote attributed to you here uh, talking about bread. You're saying that coming this fall and over the winter, uh, we're expecting bread. Quote, we're expecting bread to become more expensive, and bakery in general is is going to be more expensive for sure. For the first time in many years, we're expecting an increase of 5 to 6% in that section of the grocery store. So uh, the bread corner of the grocery store is going to be a little pricier this season. Yes. Actually, that, that section of the grocery store has been very kind to consumers on a tight budget uh, over the last five years. You may recall uh, the story about the bread price fixing scheme, mm-hmm, yes. which was going on for 14 years. Loblaws and Weston disclosed back in 2017. Now, when that happened, prices dropped 17%. So mm-hmm. it got really cheaper uh, in the bread section of the grocery store, and prices never went up, went back up again. But now we're expecting prices to go up again in that section of the grocery store. So it was really just a matter of time before it happened. But unfortunately, it's happening not at the greatest time because uh, in the meat section, for example, prices are skyrocketing. Uh, the center of the store as well. So the frozen aisle is also impacted by inflation. Mm-hmm. The, the, the good news, though, uh, and actually it's the same in B.C., even though the weather wasn't very cooperative, uh, generally speaking, uh, produce, fruits and vegetables, are actually cheaper compared to last year, 7.5%. Okay. So, you know, we often talk about things that are more expensive, but um, fruits and vegetables uh, appear to be cheaper than last year. And so it hasn't been impacted. Fruits and vegetables, unlike other years, um, haven't been impacted by major recalls this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, there hasn't been any scare in terms of food safety, so this is this is good news for people who really enjoy fruits and vegetables generally. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, you talked a little bit about the meat department, how prices there, beef and pork and such, are going to be a little higher. And is that is that a world price thing again, Sylvain, or is it supply and demand with a, a supply limited? Now, a lot of people say it's always supply and demand. Actually, it doesn't work that way in the grocery store. Okay. Grocers tend to make a lot of money at the meat counter, so they don't really play around with prices. Don't, no matter how demand reacts to prices, to be honest with you. They make a lot of money and they protect margins. But here's what's going on right now. Over the last 12 weeks in Canada, demand for uh, the meat trifecta, so pork, beef, chicken, has gone down significantly. Pork, demand for pork, okay, in volume, down 17% year to year. Chicken, yeah, chicken down 12% year to year, and beef down 6% year to year, So, which means that prices have actually remained the same, uh, or they've gone up, in fact, but people are starting to walk away from the meat counter, mm. knowing that it's too expensive. Yeah. So that's, it's just a lower volume of consumption, period. Exactly. And so I don't think, based on our data, uh, we don't believe that canes are actually walking away from the category altogether, but they are significantly reducing the amount 
the quantities they actually consume da- on a daily basis. That's, I mean, sales numbers don't lie. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now we're seeing a drop in sales in volume, but prices have, have remained quite resilient. Uh, and I'm sure that your listeners know this. Uh, <laughs> the last time they went to the meat counter, they felt they needed a mortgage to buy, you know, beef, for example. That's right. Uh, and uh, just talking about some of the other categories, uh, you, we need to talk about something called, well, it's being dubbed shrinkflation. This is this is what the producers are doing. And I, I'm thinking of, of, of a little old uh, snack that I used to enjoy as a kid that they're still available. It's, it's a prepackaged thing called Wagon Wheels. And when I was a kid, they oh, co- yeah. they, they used to, they're half the size now of what the, they used to be. And we're starting to see the same product in the same wrapping, just a little smaller version of the, of the product that you're accustomed to, but the same brand, the same everything. So that's how the manufacturer is going to try and keep the price at the same level. You're just going to get less for what you pay, right? That's right. But, I mean, uh, all due respect, you, you've grown since you've, you were a kid. So everything is relative. Of course. But you're, but, but you're right. I mean, absolutely. Shrinkflation is a strategy. I know a lot of consumers get upset when they hear that they're actually getting less for the same price. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what shrinkflation is, yeah. really. Instead of spooking consumers with higher prices, they're just being – they tweak – Quantities they actually may reduce the number of of, uh, of crackers, uh, cookies right, in yes. a box. Uh, we've seen that in chips. Uh, you're buying more air than chips mm-hmm. nowadays. Uh, they act with juices. Uh, they actually will change bottles, and the bottom of the bottle will have a bit of a bubble to actually put less juice per bottle. Right. You don't really see it. They'll. They'll give you the illusion that you're actually buying the same quantity, but you're not. That's right. Oh, and by the yeah. way, an email from Diana Lynn also mentions, well, this. Uh, take a look at the value of our dollar. And that also is going to impact food prices going forward, isn't it? Yeah, the value, I mean, that's a good point because uh, we, we tend not to talk much about the currency, but the currency has actually helped us throughout the pandemic. If you remember... When uh, the pandemic started back in March of 2020, the dollar was at around 65 cents. Mm-hmm. Now, at 65 cents versus the greenback, um, I can tell you right now, our food inflation rate would be much, much higher. But it really has helped right now still. Uh, the dollar is at around 80 cents yes. uh, against the greenback. And, and we do import, especially you guys in B.C., you guys buy a lot of food from California mm-hmm. compared to other provinces. And that has helped British Columbians because you can't produce everything uh, in British Columbia. You have to import some food. Right. And, and the dollar really clearly has helped. Interesting stuff. Sylvain, always a pleasure to have you on the program. We are very grateful for you to uh, to take some time out of your Labor Day weekend to be with us. It's deeply appreciated. Thanks very much. 
My pleasure. It's a pleasure to welcome our next guest to the airwaves of CKNW. He is the president of the United Steelworkers Local 1, 1937, which represents more than 6,200 workers here in British Columbia, 75% of whom are directly employed in the forest industry. He is also the author of a recent op-ed entitled, We Need a Balanced Conversation on Forests. A pleasure to welcome Brian Butler to the program. Mr. Butler joining us from Victoria today. Brian, good morning. Thanks for being with us today. Good morning. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you with us. Let's talk about that balanced conversation in the forest that you refer to in that editorial you wrote that we read the other day in the Times Colonist. Uh, it was all about, it was a reaction to a piece that had been written. We had a we had the folks from the Environmental Law Association on here with us, Brian, a week or so ago, uh, talking about a big petro a petrochemical project up in Prince George, uh, which they say should never go forward for environmental reasons. Uh, you're reacting to a commentary in the paper the other day, which uh, recommended 40,000 forest workers in British Columbia be transferred into jobs in other sectors as though you could you know, clink your eyes twice and suddenly that could happen. Uh, you, you found that to be, frankly, offensive, didn't you? Uh, yeah, it's offensive. It's, it's magical thinking that you could just eliminate the forest industry, basically, and uh, move everybody into other sectors. Uh, um, I have no idea how people in Port McNeil or Port Alberni or uh, Campbell River, uh, Terrace, uh, Powell River could just uh, transition to other jobs. They're, those jobs don't exist. Uh, and it's offensive to uh, our members for the hard work they do. Uh, and uh, working in a, in a renewable industry uh, that, uh, contrary to what a lot believe, isn't damaging the environment. Uh, people have this vision that uh, the forest industry is like it was in the 60s and 70s and 80s, and uh, that industry doesn't exist anymore. It's a, it's a far different industry today. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but first, just for the benefit of many of our listeners, uh, talk to us a little bit about the United Steelworkers Local 1, 1937, which I said, represent 75% of your membership is uh, are actively involved, Brian, in the forest industry. So a lot of our listeners are going, Hey, wait a second. What happened to the IWA? Didn't they used to represent all the forest workers? Where did those guys go? Yeah, that was a while ago. In 2004, uh, the IWA merged with the United Steelworkers. Uh-huh. I know it's a bit odd for people to think that uh, woodworkers are, are now steelworkers, but uh, the steelworkers is, you know, there's you know 800,000 steelworkers across North America, and, uh, you know, they represent every industry and every any industry you can think of are within the United Steelworkers. It's uh, uh, as it is within our local, where we also represent people in aquaculture, or casinos, or school districts. It's it's uh, uh, we're able to represent people uh, well in our communities. And uh, so, just because we have a different name doesn't mean we, we've changed who we are. Okay, but then again, for the benefit of some this morning, and it's early, Brian. So <laughs> you bear yeah. with me on this, and because some people are going, wait a second, steel workers? No, they don't. They don't work in the forest. Well, they do now, uh, and about for yeah. the last twenty years, are being represented by the Steel Workers Union. What is the total population of the BC forest industry force? How many people are employed in our province, Brian, in forestry? Uh-huh. Uh, there's about 50,000 direct jobs in forestry, and uh, incidental, those that are connected to the forest industry, there's probably another 50,000 that are, are uh, connected to those direct jobs. 
Okay, and um, forestry at one point was one of the pillars upon which province this province was founded and its economy was developed. It, it was forestry, the fishery, and mining. Those were the three uh, fundamental pillars of British Columbia's economy. What does forestry represent in 2021 in terms of its uh, historical uh, impact on the economy? Well, I mean, obviously it's a smaller industry than it was in the past, Uh like a lot of industry, things change and uh, techn- technological changes, um, land use decisions, uh, and uh, and the like have, have have reduced the number of direct workers in the industry. But mm. uh, we believe it has the same it has the same impact. If you, even though there's tons of jobs related to forestry in urban centers in in rural BC. Um, it is still a driver of those economies uh, all across the province. Indeed. So uh, when we talk about workers in the forestry sector, uh, we're talking at least 50,000 people with all sorts of diverse assignments. Uh, what portion of those people are involved in, in, in beyond just the, the logging and the delivery of forest products to Tidewater? Uh, that would, I assume, be the 50,000 people. Do we have a secondary industry base in British Columbia, the likes of which those of us who really deplore exporting raw logs would like us to have. Is that still coming along, Brian? Uh, Well, it was actually uh, more vibrant at one time than it is uh, now. Um, And uh, that is definitely a goal I know of government, uh, I know of our union, uh, of some companies to be able to uh, branch out into uh, more value added uh, in our forest to to um, get more out of uh, the less fiber that we have. Um, so it, it it is a work in progress, and uh, but the, you know there are lots of value added industries. It's uh, I don't think it's quite as large as it was once in the past because you know in the past there was uh, more fiber available, um, and uh, you know for a lot of years we were exporting too many logs out of this province. Right, that numbers that numbers coming. Uh, coming down, and uh, you know, as a as a union, we've always uh, known that uh, you could likely never get it to zero. Uh, but the amounts that were being of logs that were being uh, exported, uh, you know, it was just crazy for this province to be uh, sending its jobs uh, overseas. Uh, that those numbers are coming down; um, they come down further. Uh, but it's it, it is a it is a part of the industry in areas of the province where it is not economical to harvest a, a stand mm-hmm. um, to uh, get that to market domestically, and and there's, those are more remote areas on the coast where it's and, and with less productive stands that are are um, more difficult to um, harvest for a profit. Otherwise, they would be left. Sure. Brian, how's it been uh, during COVID for the last year and a half for your workers across the province in the forestry industry? Has the, uh, I mean, has it been, is it one of those essential industries or has it been closed down for extended periods of time? And what's the status these days? No, well, it, it is an essential, deemed essential industry. And, um, you know, we're thankful for that because we also do have members within our, our union that were not deemed essential and, and obviously have been out of work for a very long time during that period. Uh, but uh, you know, our members have um, uh, adapted really well. There hasn't been very, I'm, I'm not even aware of, a, of an outbreak uh, within one of our operations. Mm. Um, uh, across BC, uh, I mean, we do uh, 
you know, in manufacturing, you're a little closer together uh, than you should, should be in logging, but it's where people are traveling together in, in, uh, in, in crummies and logging and, uh, or working in close proximity in mills where it's, where it's, uh, can be a little more, uh, dangerous, uh, to for virus spread. But, uh, there's been good plans, uh, laid out in the industry. And, uh, again, uh, uh touch wood, our, our, uh, our, our members have done well, fared well during it and have really, uh, stepped up to make sure that there would be no spread. We're talking with, uh, the president of I, uh, the United Steelworkers Local 1, 1937, Brian Butler, who wrote a piece in the Victoria Times Colonist the other day asking for a balanced conversation in forest by way of responding to uh, a commentary uh, basically from someone who wanted to shut the forestry industry down and move all of those workers uh, into other areas. We certainly hear that same kind of rhetoric surrounding the petro industry as well. Well, just close down Alberta and all of those oil field workers will just, just get them other jobs, no problem. And you're saying that this is, this is uh, well, let me just, uh, let me quote from an, uh, a letter responding to this by Bob Brash from the Truck Loggers Association, Brian. And Bob was with us on the show about three weeks ago. And so it was interesting to see him respond. And here's one, just one sentence from his response. Concrete and steel don't store carbon, are less pleasing aesthetically, and much less safe in an earthquake zone. Forestry wildfires would be worse without forestry thinning, wind firming, and fire hazard abatement by industry. Talk to us a little bit about that point that Bob made about forest fires as we've had another harsh summer in the woods, Brian. What do loggers do in the forests that mitigate fires or help control the volume of fire? Uh, well, first off, I, I fully agree with what Mr. Brash uh, has said there. Um, we, you know, in, in, in like on Vancouver Island, it's a little wetter here on, on the coast it is in the interior, mm-hmm. obviously, and has been, has been as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we, we, we do have less forest fires here on, on the coast than we do in the interior, but you know, without the infrastructure um, of forestry with regard to roads and access, um, the work that gets done, uh, commercial thinning, uh, other aspects of, of forestry, all those things um, do is make uh, being able to um, deal with a fire, whether through a lightning strike or human cause, mm-hmm. Uh, a lot more accessible and a lot more easy to to deal with, uh, it, you know, if you didn't have any access to those areas and, and it simply had to deal with things from the air. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I fully, fully agree with uh, Mr. Brash's statement. Sterling Fox with you on this Labor Day weekend edition of our program, joined by the president of the United Steelworkers, Local 1, 1937. Brian Butler is on the line from Victoria. Just before we go any further forward, what's the significance of 1937 in your selection of your local identification number, Brian? Yeah, our, our local is uh, basically amalgamation of a bunch, uh, probably about seven uh, former IWA locals. And uh, 1937 is the year in which uh, the first IWA local, Local 180, uh, you know, received its charter from the IWA uh, back in 1937 oh, in Lake okay. Belgium. 
Ah, all right. So that's the history behind the, and of course, the IWA merged with the steelworkers back about 20 years or so ago. Thus, the steelworkers now represent forestry workers in BC. A little confusing early in the morning, but I think we're caught up with you now, Brian. Let's talk about the elephant in the room for a moment, shall we? It has a name, Ferry Creek. Uh, We're talking old growth logging and a lot of people who are opposed to it. Uh, There's a private company over there who has obtained an injunction being enforced by the Mounties to the tune of hundreds of arrests. Does your union have a position on old growth logging, Brian? Uh, Absolutely, we do. And we have members who work for Teal Jones, which is the company that uh, received the injunction. Right. Um, Yeah, on on old growth, um, (laughs) I'll start off by saying to dispel one misnomer that uh, often gets spread. Um, and uh, that's the, the age we live in, in in social media, that you can pretty much say anything. And if you say it enough times, people start to believe it. Uh, but the amount of old growth, uh, first of all, in coastal BC is not, is not disappearing. As a matter of fact, it's growing year over year. As a matter of fact, if you by BC government's own statistics, if you stretched out uh, the annual allowable cut over the next 250 years, the amount of old growth in this province, is in, in, sorry, in coastal BC, which I have data for, is going to over double. So the, the old growth is not disappearing. It's actually growing year over year. And uh, the misinformation on that, uh, nobody seems to be fact-checking this stuff. And uh, and it is frustrating to to our members who you know who simply uh, want to go to work, uh, who get stopped from going to work. I mean, there's no activity now because there's a, you know the First Nations uh, and government has, has agreed that there'll be a two year uh, deferral while they get their land use plan together. And that's um, so I'm, but I'm that's not, for that specific region, or is that right. is that expanded to a land plan province wide? Are we just talking about uh, that area? No, if we're just just talking about Ferry Creek, okay, and right. where, where, where the protesters are still yeah. uh, in Ferry Creek, uh, but it's 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 it is very frustrating because Ferry Creek, is the, you know, the aerial pictures they show of Ferry Creek and say that this this uh, watershed is going to be logged. It was never going to be logged. It's already protected. There was only cut blocks outside of Ferry Creek. Uh, that were approved for for harvesting. So it, uh, I'll give it to the environmental movement. They're very very good at creating uh, issues and keeping them in the media uh, with uh, facts that uh, are, uh, uh, let's say. Uh, not so accurate. Right. Well, and, and sowing doubt is also a very big part of social media campaigns. And sowing doubt yep. uh, allows doors to be opened for speculation and other possibilities. You mentioned already, though, Brian, in terms of the the degree of prominence that forestry enjoys now relative to its historical uh, degree of prominence is, is lesser. Is the forestry industry, though, still considered to be vital to British Columbia going forward? Or has it reduced in terms of contribution to the provincial economy that it, it, it's almost a secondary industry? Oh, I, yeah, I, I very much push back on that. It is vital to this province to, to continue. It is one of those uh, unique resource industries that is renewable, right? Uh, it's, it's, it's not like farming, but it is in the sense that you can perpetually keep the resource uh, going mm-hmm. in, in in a way that is not uh, you know uh, some groups will try and say that uh, that we're creating um, uh, tree farms where we're we're simply uh, planting rows of trees it's just not the case whatever is removed from the forest those species are replanted 
and regrown. And with the amount of protected forests in this province, which is why I say that the, it, the, the statistics show that old growth is actually growing year over year, right. is because there is so much protected forest in this province that uh, over the years that the amount, the growth in those of those protected areas that are not even old growth, not even 250 years old, are growing at such a rate that the old, it is growing the the old growth. So the the thought that we are losing our old growth and we're somehow Brazil, as is noted in that letter, mm-hmm. uh, are are so wrong. It, it's 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 not funny uh, that uh, people continue to spread information about uh, a vital industry in this province in a way to, to denigrate it, to denigrate uh, our members who work within it. Mr. Butter, how supervised is the forest industry in terms of, uh, of, of oversight as the day's work gets done? <laughs> people, people don't realize, again, this is not the forest industry of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. The, uh, just to get a cutting permit uh, these days, there's like about 100 bureaucratic steps that someone has to get before... Uh, you know, a forest or a, a cut block can be can be harvested. Uh, there are steps, obviously, um, and important steps and steps that should take place with with First Nations for for uh, cultural cultural sites and uh, doing those archaeological assessments. Sure, um, but there there are so many steps. This is not uh, someone's just given a license and they can just go harvest whatever they want. Uh, those days are long, long gone. And uh, and uh, it's done in a way, and the harvest, the, the riparian zones, uh, the biologists that are involved, the, the land use planning that goes into it uh, is extensive. It's it's why you know some of our costs can be the highest in the world to harvest is because we 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 do a lot of the right things. We have uh, the certifications. I think we lead the world in the, in the amount of certifications we have for uh, sustainable, environmentally uh, sensitive logging that we do here. Interesting question, Brian. Final question to you, if you don't mind, one more, and that is how much of BC's forest industry is owned by Canadians and even British Columbians versus foreigners? Uh, I, the vast majority of it is is owned by uh, British Columbians. Oh, okay. on, Vancouver, on Vancouver Island, there's, a, there's obviously a, the ENN land grant, the private lands on, on Vancouver Island. Uh, are privately owned. I know on the coast, uh, Western Forest Products uh, is the largest company on coastal uh, harvesting and manufacturing, and and they're they're Canadian owned. Uh, well, that's reassuring. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I mean, a lot of a lot of companies in BC have assets in the U.S., but they're they're owned um, by Canadian-based companies. Interesting stuff. Brian Butler on Labor Day weekend, a pleasure to speak to you, and uh, we do uh, thank you very much for taking some time to explain the merger with IWA and what the United Steelworkers Local 1 1937 are up to these days. Much appreciated, Brian. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Sterling Fox with you. Labor Day weekend 2021. Things are still pretty darn complicated. Mario Canseco is going to join us now from Research Co. here in Vancouver with lots of polling information and thoughts of where we are on this Labor Day weekend. Mario takes the pulse of the nation routinely and uh, joins us regularly with results. Mario, thanks for taking some time. Good morning. 
Good morning, Sterling. Great to be here with you. Well, it's good to have you with us. And you've got uh, lots of stuff on the on the election and so on. And we'll talk about who's doing what and who's go- doing well or not so well and all the rest of it. But I wonder, Mario, have you been asking people whether or not, regardless of whether they're going to vote for A, B, C, or D, have you been asking people their thoughts on whether we just ought not to even be voting on this utterly unnecessary election in the first place? And if so, what are we saying? <laughs> well, we do have a little bit of a negative reaction to the fact that this election is happening. Uh, it's consistent with what we saw in other jurisdictions that decided to call elections early. But as we get closer to voting day, uh, we see people sort of concentrating a little bit more on what the parties are saying and what the candidates are saying. So it was a, a natural reaction that really it lasted a little bit longer than it did here in B.C. back in, in the uh, B.C. election of last year. Um, but it's still there. I mean, there's definitely people who are deeply dissatisfied that this is happening, mm-hmm. but not enough to suggest that we'll have a significantly lower voter turnout. So that's definitely something that is a challenge for us because, you know, you want to talk to people who want to vote, not those who are saying that they won't. Right. But as uh, as as a negative reaction to basically and this one's going to cost 600 million, a Canadian election typically costs 500. But Elections Canada is going to spend another 100 million dollars on COVID proofing this election as best they can. So $600 million over what? So I'm saying, I'm asking sort of roundabout way, (laughs) will this backfire on Trudeau for calling an election about nothing? Well, it's definitely problematic in the sense that uh, the level of support for the Liberals has dropped uh, since the start of the campaign, Uh, particularly here in B.C. They were in first place in early August. I think people were hoping that they would coast to victory and would have an easier time essentially talking about uh, COVID-19 pandemic management because we know that people tend to be satisfied with that aspect of their governance. Uh, And now they find themselves in third place, uh, a lot of difficulty connecting with voters here in B.C., so... We started this campaign with the notion of will British Columbia give the Liberals the majority? Mm. At this stage, with a couple of weeks left to go, we are in a situation of will British Columbia define the color of the government? Because right now it looks like a minority. And depending on how well uh, the Conservatives do in Ontario, we might get to British Columbia's votes and essentially try to figure out who's going to do better and who will form the government or have the first crack at forming the government. So... For those political uh, uh, fans out there, uh, they thought it was going to be like 1974 through the majority. It's starting to look more like 1979. Mm-hmm. And kind of exciting from a British Columbia standpoint. How many times in your lifetime, certainly in mine, have we turned on the news coverage at, uh, at 8 o'clock after the polls close? Now, it's different these days. But how many times can you remember <laughs> that you turn on the uh, uh, poll coverage? It's, it's election day. Let's see. Let's see how we're doing. And the guy comes on and says from Toronto, it's a majority government. And you go, wait a second, you guys haven't even counted one blinking ballot in BC. You mean we don't matter again? Well, guess what, Mario? This time we're going to matter a lot, aren't we? This time it's going to be different. I think it'll be similar to 2015, uh, where, you know, the the effect of Trudeau mania in British Columbia was so massive uh, that they actually ended up getting seats they didn't expect to win, such as the one in Mission. 
that is the only election in this century where the Conservatives or the Canadian Alliance have not finished in first place when it comes to the voting percentages. So that was a different situation from the get-go. This time around, because of the fact that the Liberals are not doing as well as they did in Ontario, we might get to British Columbia with uh, essentially 100 and something to 100 and something yeah. votes. And then that is what makes this very compelling. I mean, I do remember the election of 2000, which happened in November, and it's right after the U.S. election where we had the situation with the Florida recount. And uh, I do remember that that election was called fairly quickly. Uh, even though the Canadian Alliance got 49% of the vote in BC. Mm. So there was definitely a scenario where the votes in Ontario and Quebec decided everything. I think it'll be different this year. I agree with you. And by the way, this is the weekend that everything is supposed to turn. The timing of this election, very deliberate, the first three weeks of the six uh, through the summer vacation when we're officially not supposed to care or even want to pay any attention. Well, it's Labor Day now, and the balance of the campaign for the next, uh, what, couple of weeks is going to be pretty intense because now we're supposed to start caring as if we have a button we can turn off and on. But nonetheless, where are we this weekend uh, as the caring season commences? Well, where we are is at a place where the liberals didn't imagine they were going to be in. I think there was an expectation that they would do well in Quebec, and they are. The level of support for the bloc is lower than it was last time. Mm. Uh, But they're not doing well in Ontario. If we go back to the election of 2019, the Liberals got 42% of the vote in Ontario. That enables them to form a minority government, even when the Conservatives did so well in Western Canada. This time around, it's it's a statistical tie with the Conservatives. So that means that 15, 20 seats in Ontario are up for grabs. That takes away your ability to seek a majority government. And it makes how you do in British Columbia extremely crucial. And right now, they're in third place. We started in August with a situation where people were happy with the pandemic management. Now the Liberals are in third place. There's a tie between the Conservatives and the NDP for first place. So... The debates were supposed to be about give me a majority and we'll have all of those things. Mm. It's a completely different ballgame for the liberals because they essentially need to tell to people, this is the vision of the country that we have and we need you to stay with us. Whereas Erin O'Toole has been remarkable in its comeback. You know, we had a situation where his numbers weren't really that great. He had a lot of unfavorable views. The way the campaign has been run has certainly allowed him to connect in Ontario and in British Columbia and turn this into a very close race when it really wasn't a month ago. And you're right. And I think with O'Toole, uh, in his case, a lot of the unfavorable views, Mario, were simply no idea who the guy is. Uh, he's really sort of come into his own uh, now that they're spending money and, and getting him out in front of people. But the biggest uh, hurdle he had to clear going into this election was to have people know who the heck he is. And I think that uh, that uh, relatability factor, if you will, has definitely come up. Well, it's similar to what happened with Justin Trudeau back in 2015. We started that election with the NDP in first place under Tom Volcker, with the, uh, with the Stephen Harper Conservatives in second, and with Justin Trudeau in third place. And we ended up with Justin Trudeau having a majority government. Mm-hmm. You know, it's better to get people to know you during the campaign than to allow them to have a specific view of how they believe you should be behaving. And I think that has really played into the hands of the Conservatives who maybe didn't think they were going to be able to compete as as much as they have right now. And it changes the mindset. It was ultimately, okay, let's make sure that this is not a blowout. We need to make sure that they don't get a, a, a majority government. Now it's essentially a couple of seats here, a couple of seats there, and we get the first crack at forming the government. 
Paul Meister, Mario Canseco from Research Company with us on this Labor Day weekend, Sunday morning edition of our program. We're talking about, of course, the election and uh, who's who's voting for whom or who's leaning to whom. And uh, we talked, uh, Mario, just before the break about younger voters. I wanted to get your thoughts on younger voters. Mr. Trudeau and the We Kids, uh, they really stood up for him in the last couple of elections. I don't think he's going to get that kind of wave of massive youth support that got him to where he is now this time around. I see a lot of that going to Jagmeet Singh, uh, dancing on TikTok and doing and saying all the right things. I think he's going to scoop a lot of that youth vote. What do your polls tell you? Well, it's definitely a close race when it comes to the voters in Canada who are aged 18 to 34. Uh, we have the Liberal Party at 34 percent, the NDP at 29 percent. If we go back to the 2015 election in the final stages, uh, the liberals were close to 40 percent with this demographic or sometimes higher. Mm -hmm. So you're definitely losing a little bit of that luster. And I think it has a lot to do with how difficult it is to campaign as the incumbent. Uh, It's easy to sell the idea of change. It's easy to sell the idea of something that needs to be different. It certainly helped uh, the liberals back in 2015. And this time around, they're they're defending territory. They're talking about specific things that they may or may not have done. Mm -hmm. And it allows the NDP to essentially talk about certain promises that weren't kept. Um, Especially, I think they're doing very well connecting on the housing file. The fact that they're doing so well in British Columbia is directly related to the discussion that they're having in Metro Vancouver about housing. And this is what is turning them into a very competitive force nationwide. You know, they're not doing very well in Quebec. Uh, They're way behind in Ontario when you compare them to the other parties. So we don't have the 2015 scenario of the three parties being able to form the government. But in British Columbia, they're doing remarkably well. And a lot of that is youth because of the housing file. Now, voter turnout also tends to sort of lean in terms of the question to youth because young the younger the voter, the less likely they are to turn out on any given election day, Mario. So what can you tell us about expectations for younger voters turning out on September 20th? Well, there's a couple of things that we need to take into consideration. There's usually a higher voter turnout with people aged 18 to 24. It might be your first or second election. You're very motivated. Mm -hmm. You're new to this. And you might be able to go out there and vote because it's important to you or this is the first time you do it. There's a little bit of a drop when you look at the numbers for people aged 25 to 30. That's the moment when you get disappointed because maybe you volunteered for a candidate and knocked on doors or you were hoping for your candidate to win and they didn't. So it's very interesting in the sense that it's the second election that is the toughest. So if you want to motivate voters, you need to motivate the voter who is voting for the second time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people who participate the first time, who are happy, knock on doors, read everything, read the platforms, watch the debates. And then when their candidate loses, they go, I don't want to do this anymore. So that is the big challenge for the parties, how to connect with a disenchanted voter who maybe supported somebody the last time that didn't win. And how do you get them to look at you seriously? And and you can see some pretty aggressive uh, campaigning or reaching out to that um, vast group of undecided voters. Mario, need to change gears here with only a few minutes left in our conversation to talk about vaccine passports. Uh, Certainly a contentious issue province-wide in BC. I keep referring to the urban-rural divide and the government has some, uh, some statistics that would back me up to a certain extent, but do you have polling evidence of stronger support for vaccine passports in BC cities than in the the rural portion of our province? 
Well, we do see a little bit of a shift. What's really interesting is we started asking this back in March of 2021. You know, back then we didn't even know if we would have enough vaccines for everybody. Mm-hmm. And the level of support for the passport in all of its forms has actually increased uh, over the past five months. We have more than uh, two-thirds of residents who are happy with this idea to be able to go to a live sporting event, to go to concerts, to travel to other Canadian provinces, even uh, to be able to work at an office. We have 63% of people who say this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. Now, there's definitely a higher level of support in Metro Vancouver and in Vancouver Island than what we see in Southern British Columbia. You know, it's a place where maybe people tend to be a little bit different when you're looking at the way things are, but it's not something that is drastic. I think it's definitely uh, interesting to watch because we ask certain questions and you can see Northern British Columbia, Southern British Columbia, the face of Valley behaving differently from the island in Metro Vancouver. There's a little bit of a drop in the level of support for the passport, but nowhere near a, a situation that would suggest that the majority of people in these areas are disappointed with the notion that this is coming out. Mm. So there's a lower level of support, but it's not as if a specific part of the province is saying, no, we won't accept this. Right, exactly. And, and we did see, once the announcement of the vaccine passport program uh, came about, we have seen a significant increase in bookings for first shot appointments. People uh, ultimately sort of coming to terms with, well, if this has got to be, then might as well get join the parade, so to speak, right? Well, and it's something that we saw in other jurisdictions. I think part of the problem here is that British Columbia took a long time to make this decision. You look at Manitoba, which in June, in June, said, we're heading towards this, be ready for it, you need to be vaccinated, and we're going to have a card. It took us too long to get here. Uh, Quebec did this a few weeks ago, and we also saw that uptick in vaccinations. Um, Alberta was the the latest to arrive with a $100 bill in case you decide to do this. Yes. Um, So we're not as terrible as Alberta, but we're not bribing the people with their own money. Mm -hmm. But it took a long time. And you look at Manitoba, you look at the fact that they played two games uh, for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers in front of 30,000 fans with zero COVID cases. That's right. Everybody was vaccinated. And here we are with BC Place at half capacity because it took too long to do this. That's right. And of course, we'll hear more on Tuesday from the provincial government with respect to details about the implementation of this vaccine passport. But my gosh, there's an awful lot of confusion in both the general public and particularly the business community who is going to be charged with the responsibility of of, of surveying these passports. There's still a lot of, of gray area here, Mario, and that's not helping. Well, it's not helping at all, partly because, you know, it's something that is supported by a lot of people. So if you don't explain how you're going to be doing this, then it leads to all sorts of confusion. And it only enhances those who believe that this goes against their freedom. So uh, we definitely need a better rollout of this. Uh, We could copy what Manitoba did, which was remarkably successful. So. There's always something to be learned about jurisdictions that did this right the first time. Absolutely. And well, let's hope that on Tuesday we get a lot more clarification on some of the issues that are just perplexing as all get out. Mario Canseco, always a pleasure to have some time with you on the program as you take the pulse of British Columbians and Canadians. We do appreciate it, especially on a holiday. Thanks for joining us today. My pleasure, Sterling. Anytime. 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.